Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Raw Knuckles Podcast. Please like, follow, and subscribe. Did you play hockey as a kid growing up in, in Dirty Dorchester? Dirty Dorchester. No, I didn't play ice hockey. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I, I had cancer at the age of seven. So I was treated at uh, Jimmy Dana Faber and Jimmy Fund in, in Children's Hospital for about four years. So, But we played a lot of street hockey. We played a lot of, you know, a lot of gym hockey, a lot of that back in, the, in, in this neighborhood. Yeah, I, I did not, didn't play the ice hockey, though. But we, we yeah. followed it. Chris Nyland, I remember watching Chris Nyland <laughs> play for Canadians, man. You know, remember that. When I stepped on the ice, I never backed down, and I never stayed down. And I was vicious, and I was malicious, and I don't care. <laughs> Anyway, good to have you. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, welcome to the Raw Knuckles podcast. My partner Tim out today. He's he's getting re-educated in life today. So <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah, a good thing. So hey, listen, both Boston guys, and you know it's funny when <clears throat> uh, someone called me and said, "Hey, do you know Marty Walsh?" I said, "Yeah, I know Marty," and. Uh, I said, why? He said, oh, I think he might be getting uh, the job as director of the PA. And I had no idea, right? It was it kept pretty quiet, I guess. Yeah. And uh, it got out. And were you were you looking to get out of the, the job you were in as Secretary of Labor for the Biden administration? Or did someone reach out to you and say, hey, geez, we got a job here. I think you might be interested. How'd that go? Yeah, what happened, Chris, was, first of all, thanks for having me today. It's great to be on here um, with you and, and talking hockey, and I'm excited about it. Um, the way this happened was I was I was um, Secretary of Labor for President Biden. I had previously been the mayor of Boston. Uh, I was not looking to leave the administration. And around December, uh, before Christmas, I had gotten a call by a recruitment agency saying that the NHL Players Association was looking for a new executive director. Would I be interested in having a conversation about it? I said, sure. Like, I, I never really thought. I knew the PA existed. I knew it was a union. Uh, I tried to get some PA swag over the years because I'm a big union guy. And um, so I started to have conversations with, with uh, a couple of players. And there was a 10-player search committee uh, led by uh, Kyle Ocposo, who's kind of one of the leaders, and Ron Hainsey, a former player. Uh, and I started having conversations with them and set up a series of meetings. Uh, and then after about you know five or six meetings, um, you know, they, they, the conversation got real serious real fast. Uh, I went out to Nashville, met with some players uh, there who were on the search committee. Uh, and then later that night, the, the search committee made a recommendation. They put my name up to become the head of the PA. Um, and that's kind of how it happened. It was complete, you know, luck, I guess you can call it, or right place, right time. Uh, is not something that I was looking for. Uh, I didn't even really think it exists. I could get this job. Um, but you know, basically, when I got the, when I when I was promoting myself and what I would bring to the PA, uh, a lot of the people before me were lawyers, and, and they were asking me about being lawyers. And I said, to be run a union, you don't have to be a lawyer. You have lawyers, and, and I, I gave my background. And, and I think a lot of the players liked the background of negotiating contracts on both sides. Quite honestly, uh, as mayor, building relationships and uh, potential growth of hockey and HRR, hockey-related revenue, and and really taking hockey to the next level. And I think a lot of the players like that. And, and I was fortunate enough to go in front of the e-board, uh, 31 to nothing vote there in front of the e-board in Florida. Uh, one of the teams lost communication. They were in by Zoom. 
So it's been it's been a, it's been an incredible, interesting ride for the last seven months. Yeah, it is. It uh, wasn't um, as close as that first mayor's race that you no. had in Boston, right? No. With Conley, no. uh, it wasn't that close. So that's good. It's good to be wanted. And um, it was nice. It was nice. And it's good to be, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm going around now talking to the players at fall tour and, and I've met with a bunch of players already just reinforcing that this is a union. We have a collective bargaining agreement and uh, you know, it, it just, the, 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 the importance of the PA just isn't during the negotiation year. It's all year long. We represent players and, and also in today's world, it's about helping grow the business of in the game of hockey. Yeah. And, and, um, I look at your, certainly your background and, you know, a lot of people don't know who Marty Walsh is uh, when it comes to the hockey world. Right. And you come in here and, you know, you work construction of the kid in Boston. Uh, You got, um, you became the union leader. You negotiated contracts there. You got into politics, mayor of Boston. Um, You you go on to become secretary of labor for the United States uh, under Biden. Um, you have done so many things in your life and I, so many different jobs. What is it, I guess, about your character that allows you to be able to, what's the thing that allows you to be able to navigate all those different positions you've held over the years? Well, Chris, the biggest piece is I got sober uh, at 28 years old. And, you know, prior to that, um, I was not in politics yet. I was, I was a union, I was a union president in my local, actually I was a recording secretary in my local at that time. Um, and, um, I had dreams and aspirations to be, uh, in politics. I wanted to run for office and, and my life quite honestly on the outside looked pretty good cause I, I kept up a good appearance, but on the inside, I was a mess. Um, you know, drinking blackouts, you know, embarrassments, all that stuff. And uh, I went to detox, uh, down, down the Cape and Gosnell, um, and, you know, when I went to detox, I say this often a lot that, you know, I thought it was the worst day of my life, that it was only going to get worse. And I didn't realize it was probably the best day of my life because I went down there uh, and I learned about the disease of alcoholism. Um, I was suggested that when I get out of treatment, I go to 90 meetings in 90 days, get a sponsor and, and jump in the program. And, you know, I didn't know what any of that meant, but I went to A meetings when I got out, um, went to about almost 90 and 90. Um, and I, and I quite honestly got on a pink cloud right away. I mean, life got good. I lost the desire for drinking. Uh, and then, uh, a year and a half later, uh, I was running for a state representative in Dorchester. I was in a position in my life that I could do things and, and, you know, and that keeping that one day at a time and that sobriety front and center has allowed me opportunities. I understand that, you know, you have to, when I was a state rep, I wanted to be a mayor. I wanted to be somewhere else. And you have to learn patience and tolerance, if you will, to some degree, listen to people, offer help as much as you can. And I've been fortunate. And, and I did that for 16 years uh, as a state rep, you know, continuous sobriety, um, ran for mayor of Boston, um, same thing. And then uh, secretary of labor and Biden. And I think, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, when you, people who are alcoholics or dry, you know, this, they're overachievers generally. Uh, and, and they're overachievers in life and they're overachievers because they do anything they can for the drink and the drug. And when they get sober, they take that energy and usually put it into good use when they get sober, when people really get sober, hopefully. Uh, and, and, you know, I've been blessed and that that's really, I think that's one of my biggest pieces. Another piece is just listening to people, being compassionate and, you know, be in the business for the right reason. I was in politics to help people. I got in politics to, to help people and try and help communities and, and whether it's my neighborhood of Dorchester or the city of Boston or the country, quite honestly, when I became the secretary of labor, 
And I think that some people, when they get into politics, they kind of forget why they ran for it in the first place. And I try to stay connected to my roots and going to meetings keeps me humble. Uh, you know, no matter what roles I've had, um, you know, whether I'm the mayor or the head of this or head of that, a secretary of the United States of America, the people that I go to meetings with, we're all the same. We're just people trying to stay sober that course of the day. So I don't view myself as the secretary of labor in the president's cabinet. I view myself as Marty Walsh, who happened to make it there and is honored to be there and to try and help people. Certainly a uh, good way to look at it. And I, I um, share the, um, uh, the, the alcoholism piece with you for sure. And um, my life has changed in a lot of good ways too. When I decided to put the drink down, um, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at uh, is what's the most important part of your I guess your personality or a trait that makes you as successful as you've been in every, every street you've gone. Now I'm sure you've had some setbacks in life and not everything's been honky dory all the time, but what's that one personality trait that you have that gets, I, I guess, gets you, you know, I get the sober piece, but maybe compassion for others, just be compassionate and, and, and you know, nobody nobody's too beneath anyone for me to call back um you know think about you know how how to rather than have a fight how do we get to a resolution um you know i, I think maybe compassion is the word i'd use i think when i say compassion I, a broad broad uh description of compassion um you know understanding that you know that if i'm talking to somebody whether it's a constituent in the streets of dorchester boston united states of america or now my the hockey players just understanding that they have a story to tell, they have an issue they have to deal with, and being being able to listen to them, and try and, and try and help resolve it the best I can. And I think that that's one of the things. I think being fair um, and 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 be telling the truth. I mean, I think that that's another piece. Being being honest. Uh, people don't always equate politics to honesty, but there's a lot of good people in politics and the good people in union politics uh, that are honest people that just want to be there for the right reasons. So. Uh... You get this position, you come in, you're f certainly following a, a legend in uh, uh, Donald Fair, who was who the head of the uh, Major League Baseball and then NHL for years. Um, uh, any pressure in coming in there and, you know? No, I, I, view, I view it like, you know, I followed, I followed a 15-year uh, a state rep, Jim Brett, when I got elected yep. state rep. And people used to say, oh, you have big shoes to fill. And then I, I quite just like did my job at that moment. And then when I followed Tom and, you know, 20 year mayor in Boston, people say you have big shoes to fill. And, and somebody said to my successor as a state rep one day, uh, Danny Hunt, I was with him and we were together as a mayor. And somebody said to Danny Hunt, you got big shoes to fill to Danny. <laughs> and and what, what I said was he has his own shoes to fill. And, and I don't view like, you know, the Don, Donald Fear has an amazing career in, in, in union sports in baseball and hockey, he did a lot of great things in that timeline. I'm not looking to be Donald Fair. Donald Fair is not looking Marty Walsh to be my Donald Fair. And, right. and I think that you respect the people that came before you uh, and you, you, you blaze your own trail. And I think that that's something that, that I've always looked at. I've always been told, oh, you got big shoes to fill in. I just, you know, I'd laugh and whatever, but I always think they're your own shoes and, and you're going to run things in a different way. And, you know, Donald, Donald Fair was a lawyer and did a lot around collective bargaining. I'm not tested there yet. I'll be tested there in a couple of years in 2026. But, you know, I, I come at things a little different than most people. And I think that change is good. I think Donald Fia followed Bob Goodenow. And Bob Goodenow had some very good days in the PA. And I think that 
you know, in different style than he is. And I'm different than Donald. And I think that, so the pressure really for me was I made a commitment to the players that I'll get to know every player in the league. And that's, that's really what I'm focused on right now is getting to know my, getting to know the members of the union and explaining to the younger guys what a union is, explain to the older guys that, you know, we can go in a different direction. So everyone has a different experience, right? Some people are disgruntled. I still hear a lot about the 012 lockout, a lot of, a lot of feelings, emotions around that. A lot of feelings, not many players from 04. I don't think there's any players. Maybe, no, I don't think there's any players left in 04 lockout. So, like, you can't forget that, but you learn from that. But it's like, you know, understanding that this, this is a, a union that, you know, we're going to make different changes in the way we do things. So I, a lot, that's a long way to answer your question. But I don't, I don't feel the pressure necessarily. If I don't do my job, then I'll feel the pressure. All right. So uh, uh, let's see. Uh, how... How would you define your job as an NHLPA head now? Um, you're not trying to outdo anybody, uh, but yeah, coming no. in here, how do you define that job? Well, I think, you know, when I tell people that aren't connected to um, sports or hockey and I tell them I'm the head of the union, the first reaction is, oh, yeah, you represent million-dollar hockey players. Uh, and that couldn't be further from the truth. And, and I say that because you know this. There are probably about 200, roughly, I might have the numbers wrong, players that are on minimum contracts um, of 775000 which is a lot of money. But those players might not play a consistent season in the league. Those players have basically from the age of 13, 14 years old, dedicated their entire life to hockey. So their, their education put on the back burner, their life put on the back burner. They've been focused on hockey to make it to the NHL. And I think my role as the head of the PA my number one role is the collective bargaining agreement. Obviously, that's obvious. Um, negotiating a contract and making sure that the league and the teams are living by the terms of the contract and on uh, making sure we, we understand the contract, we're living by the terms of the contract. We also uh, are working on, uh, we have a program in the NHLPA that we launched a couple months ago called Unlimit, which is an in-house professional service contract. So as players are playing, maybe getting to think a little bit about what the future, their future might be and help them think about what's life after hockey going to be like. Uh, we have a program, a health and wellness program, making sure the player's mental health is strong. Uh, we have graphic design program to make sure that if players want to start foundations, we can help them with graphic design. We have a benefit, health and benefit, and a pension benefit office, which obviously makes sure that their pensions are in place. They understand the, the impact of the pension, making sure the health care is there. We also have a legal department. Uh, we handle... All, you know, all um, any suspensions that are given out by the league to players, we represent the players there. Uh, and then we also are thinking we're going into the space a lot more now of growing the game of hockey. We're looking at our business office and we're looking at international hockey. Uh, we're engaged in the Olympics, uh, making sure that players play, can play, NHL players can play in 2026. Uh, we're looking at bringing back the World Cup of Hockey Tournament, not just a one-off, but a tournament in like 20, 2025 leading into the Olympics 2026. That won't be a World Cup. That'll be looking to see what that might be. And then hopefully 2030 and 2034 uh, World Cup of Hockey. So the fans have an opportunity to have real best-on-best best international hockey every two years. That's ultimately what our goal is, working closely with the NHL on that. So there's a, there's a lot lot to this job um, yeah. that we do. Uh, and, and I think, you know, for me, uh, and I've received some of these calls, you know, when a player calls and says, I'm having trouble with whatever it is, we get them the right place or their family members having problems. We try to get them to the right place. So you talked about, um, you, you know, the, the million dollar hockey players, people think about uh, guys making all this money and 
uh, how do you balance then when you look at the overall league, you, you know, or how are you going to balance the needs of all the star players, the Bedards, the McDavid's, all that, and, and you know, those minimum wage players, those guys that make short money. How, how do you balance that? Or well, how are you going to? The key is you treat everyone the same. And, and, and whether you're, whether you're uh, Austin Matthews, Connor McDavid, or Sidney Crosby, uh, who make the higher end of the, of the contract, um, they still have might have might have I mean they haven't called me but they might have other issues that they're working on and then the players that are just trying to make the league this year might be on a minimum might be on a minimum contract and it's their first year in the league they're all they're all the members of this union and we treat them all the same and, and I think that you know obviously the, the Sidney Crosby's and, and the and the, and the Connor McDavid's of the world um, and, and you know Matthews and, and, and even Bedard he's young he's young guy so I think the a lot of pressure on that kid right now. I think they should just let him play hockey. Um, they also help grow the game. I mean, you don't have you don't have the sport of hockey. You know this better than anyone, Chris. It's not about the jersey. It's not about the team. It's not about the arena. It's really about the the, the players. Those that's the personality of the league, and those those are the people that are going to drive people to the seats and, and, and grow the game of hockey. And I want to make sure the players that I represent are taken care of along the way, not just financially, but but anything they need from us to, to be successful both on the ice, but also off the ice. I mean, these, all, a lot of these players, they don't, might not start off with a family, but they end up with a family. So if they have pressures, we need to try and help them with that. Well, you've got kind of thrown into the fire right away with the, uh, the issue in Columbus with uh, Mike yeah. Babcock uh, looking at players' phones and pictures on their phones. Um, you know, there was some, you know, I was, when that come out, I'm like, you know, was it voluntary? And it looked like a couple of players kind of wanted to go to bat for him. Uh, and you had to go down there and address that and support the players. Um, what what was that like? You know, that was kind of the first big thing you had to do. Yeah, it really. As far yeah, as publicly. Yeah, there was a couple of little, not little things. Arizona is another one. We can come back to that in a minute. The, you know, the Coyotes playing in, in a college arena, which is bothers, yeah. bothers me. Uh, we had an issue uh, in Vancouver with um, with skating after the season's over when the collective buying agreement clearly states that when the season's over, the season's over. But the, 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 the situation in Columbus was a lot different. Um, you know, we had heard different, there was different reports and different podcasts about, um, you know, the coach taking the phones and downloading them. And, you know, when we looked into it, we realized it was a little more serious than that. So myself and Ron Hainsey jumped on a plane. Uh, we went down to Columbus. Uh, John Davidson, the president of, of Columbus, was great. Great guy. Have- he let us have space in the, in the in the locker room. We went in the locker room. Nobody was there. We addressed the players, and in talking to the players, realized there was there was another issue, uh, another issue that we had to deal with, and that really kind of was the issue that that was the impetus to, to what what happened. After that, we went met with Gary Bettman, and and the rest is history. But you know what I said to the players is that you know we're going to represent you, and you know I'm not looking to get people fired and dismissed. I mean, if, if the situation you. can be fixed, we fix it, obviously. I don't know uh, Mike Babcock at all, other than watching him on, over the years on TV, coaching different games and different teams. But it was a situation serious enough that that we had to address it, and we did. And you know, and, and you know, and you know, I have that right now that relationship with Gary Batman. That if he has an issue, he's going to pick up the phone and call me. If I have an issue, I'm going to pick up the phone and call him. In the case of Columbus, we had to do a little homework there before we had that call. And we actually, after we went to Columbus, the next day we jumped on a plane and we flew to New York. We met with uh, Gary Bettman and Bill Daly in their office, expressed the situation that we encountered. They did some work on it, 
And then, you know, a few days later, obviously the, the Columbus went in a different directions, but I told the players, I'm here to represent you. So I'm going to go and, and represent, represent you. Now, if a coach is giving you a hard time because you have the way you're playing on ice, I can't represent, that's not my role. That's not my job, but my job is to make sure that there's not extreme circumstances. And in this particular case, there was extreme circumstances. So that other issue, uh, obviously not public, but it was something more than it was just, more than the it was more well, than the pictures on the on the wall. Uh, wow! So, uh, and I can understand you not wanting to discuss that to keep it private. I get it. Um, uh, hockey players, uh, they're different than other athletes, and I say that because for years, just being around in. I'm partial, obviously, to hockey players, but they're always in charity work, doing different stuff. Yeah. They also are willing to play in international events. They want to. Um, where other sports, that's the last thing they want to do. They want to get away from it, you know, it seems. Uh, they, they don't do that. When you look at that, the you know, the personality of hockey players in international hockey, and just say the Olympics are coming, how – how are you going to deal with the possibility then <clears throat> when we look at the situation now in Russia with the yeah. Ukraine and Russian players? Because I've seen things, you know, guys calling, you know, take their endorsements away and this and that. I mean, they have nothing to do with, you know, Putin's decision to do what he did. And you just see so many absurd statements from people talking about, you know, Russian players and, and, you know, should they play or not, or should they get endorsements because the country they were born in decided to do something that um, they had no part of? How do you yeah, deal you with know, that? When it comes to play, uh, Olympics is the IOC. Um, mm -hmm. you know, we have no jurisdiction over whether or not to let uh, Russia play in the Olympics. That's all the IOC. So when it comes to the 2026 games, if we can work everything out where we have NHL players playing in there, uh, that's really that's going to be a decision made on on a larger level. Um, when it comes to World Cup of Hockey, uh, the first tournament that we try and to put together will be all NHL hockey players. Now I'm not sure what's going to look like. We'll tr we'll figure that out. But let's assume for a moment that we have a full World Cup of Hockey tournament in 2028. Let's just assume it's going to yeah. be there. Um, we also have to go by the rules of the IIHF uh, because there'll be other than NHL players playing in the best on best tournament. So it's kind of like the, the, there are higher governing rules that we have to see with Russian players and if Russians can play, Russian players can play in, in the tournament. You know, the PA represents Russian players. I mean, I've had some conversations. Uh, I'm going to have more. Uh, I think that when, when it comes to endorsement deals and things like that, I mean, the United States and other countries might might take sanctions against Russia for, for what, what they're doing in Ukraine. But I still think, you know, the players in the NHL, you're right. They, they, they're here. They're playing in the NHL. They're not in Russia. They can't make a decision whether or not to pull out of Ukraine or not pull out of Ukraine. And I think, you know, stereotyping our NHL players that are Russian is, is wrong to do that. Uh, and, and, you know, and it's something that I will, I will, I mean, I haven't saw a lot of that right now. I've seen a lot of that and a lot of that happened prior to my tenure as the PA head, but I would, I would defend our players in that case. When it comes to playing in tournaments, that, that is something that, you know, obviously is it's, I'm not passing the buck to the IOC and I'm not passing the buck to the, uh, WHF, but that's their rules and regulations, uh, and, and then making it based off of the impacts of what other teams and other players will say. There are other countries that won't play in the tournament uh, if you know Russian players are playing in there. So that's there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of you know a lot of emotion there too, uh, and a lot it's all worldwide stuff. And I'm hoping I'm hoping praying 
for, for, for the world and for Ukraine that this um, war uh, in Ukraine is, 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 I'm hoping that people, I don't know if come to their senses is the right word, but realize that this is not something that we need to do pursue anymore and let Ukraine continue to be a country so we can get on with world business. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, things are pretty unsettled internationally right now, not too good. Um, you brought up the Arizona issue. How the hell are you going to be able to deal with that and fix that? Uh, I know the league certainly got to do something about it, but how do you, how do you, you know, coerce them or get them to say, Hey, you know, enough with Arizona, we, we move on to another city or, or, you know, we get an arena built here because it's right. Playing in a college rank. I mean, come on. Yeah, no, it's, it's, first of all, it's unfair. These players are playing in the college arena. These, these are NHL national hockey league players. Um, I've said it more than one time. They're the second tenant in the building on top of it. So it's not even, they're not even the primary tenant. So the, the main locker rooms go to the colleges. You know, the players are in a different locker room. The workout spaces, all this stuff. I mean, the, the players have, don't get to experience a home game in a stadium of, of 18, 19,000 people, which is wrong. Then I think that we have to fix that. So I went down to Arizona at the end of the season last year. Arizona was playing Vancouver. Myself, Ronnie. Um, Ron Hainsey, uh, Don Zavol, the, the lawyer for the PA. We went down there. Uh, we met with some players. Uh, we met with Gary Bettman was there, Bill Daly. We met with, I met with the owner of Arizona. I met with the president of Arizona. And at that point, there was a ballot question going in front of the voters of Tempe to approve the use of land um, to build a, a stadium there. And, and a, a larger development, but a stadium was part of it. The voters voted that down. So I've been talking to Gary a lot about this um, and saying that we need resolution on this. And, you know, the I have not talked to the owner of the Arizona um, Coyotes, but I understand that he has been in conversation uh, in a couple of spots in Arizona to build a rink. Uh, they need to come to a resolution pretty soon uh, because, you know, once you once you buy the land, it's going to take a couple of years, uh, more than a couple of years, a few years to build and permit something. So if that doesn't happen, then we're going to have to have another conversation. Uh, I've kept the players uh, posted on what we're doing here, um, you know, and, and, and you know, so hopefully within the next couple of months, we have some clarity on where we go with it. Uh, hopefully there'll be a shovel in the ground somewhere building a new stadium if that's the course they, they're going to go. If not, we have to think about where, they, where, where, they're, going to, where they're going to play next. Did you play hockey as a kid growing up in, in Dirty Dodgesa? Dirty Dodgesa. No, I didn't play ice hockey. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I, I had cancer at the age of seven. So I was treated at uh, Jimmy, Dana Faber and Jimmy Fund and, and Children's Hospital for about four years. So, But we played a lot of street hockey. We played a lot of, you know, a lot of gym hockey, a lot of that back in, the, in, in this neighborhood. Yeah, I, I didn't, uh, didn't play the ice hockey, though. But we, we yeah. followed it. Chris Nyland, I remember watching Chris Nyland <laughs> play for the Canadians, man. You know, remember that. I remember... Mayor Flynn uh, talked about maybe having me arrested because I got in a fight in the hallway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, remember yeah. The, the, the brawl in the hall? And oh, yeah. he came out the next day and said, geez, you know, there's one thing about fighting on the ice, but, uh, you know, we got to look into that. We may have to arrest uh, people if they're fighting in the halls of the Boston Garden. But that... I never got arrested, which was good. So that's a good thing. Um, yeah, no, yeah, it was a different. But plus, you know, it was the jersey you're wearing. That was more of the, more yeah, the message yeah. you were sending back yeah. then. That was yeah. that was a real rivalry back then. Yeah, it was. It's kind of cooled off. 
If you're like me and you're going to play some golf this summer, you have to check out this hidden gem. Windmill Heights sits atop the beautiful hills in Notre Dame de El Perot. They have affordable rates and they offer customized membership opportunities for all levels. If you want to book a tee time, call 514-453-7177. Hit them straight. If you love your pet like I love my St. Bernard Adele, you'll want to feed them a balanced, biologically appropriate raw diet. The reason I've chosen Formula Raw is because all blends of their food are locally sourced and they consist of exclusively human-grade meat and organs, as well as fruits and vegetables. And all products used are hormone and antibiotic-free. So like I said, if you love your pet like I love Adele, you'll choose Formula Raw. Make sure you go to FormulaRaw.com and use the promo code RAWNUX at checkout to receive 10% off your first order. That's RAWNUX, R-A-W-K-N-U-X. And so, you know, I've seen some things about expansion here and there, you know, and, and they're supposedly building a new arena in Atlanta, which I don't get why they'd even consider that. I know Bettman said they're not considering expansion right now. Can you see them putting more teams in this league at some point? You know, I don't really know that. Gary Bettman hasn't talked to me about expansion. I've asked him if there is expansion. I'd love to talk to him about it. Um, he's f- claims he's focused on the 30. Not when I say claims, he's he's focused on the 32 teams. I, I guess you can never rule it out. I think that, you know, expansion, when you think about expansion, it gives more people, more players the opportunity to play in the league, uh, brings in more revenue. Uh, I think if, if they're going to expand, the, the last two teams they expanded uh, were Vegas and Seattle. The success in those two teams is unbelievable. I'm not just talking success on the ice. Um, you know, Seattle, I think Seattle and Vegas are in the top 10 most, um, you know, um, financially supported, financially supported teams. Uh, so they really, and they did it right. I mean, those teams, obviously Vegas won the Stanley Cup, but you know, I think if you're going to put teams in markets, you need to make sure that they're going to be set up for success. Uh, I know that Atlanta, even, even, you know, when I think of Atlanta, I think of the flames when, when they were, you know, as a kid, they were playing the flames yeah. were there. Uh, and then, uh, they left and the trashes came in. And then they weren't successful. And, and I think that in, in learning a little bit about Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, um, the success isn't necessarily in the city. It's in the suburbs. So I know the Braves moves out to the suburbs. The Falcons are obviously in the city. So I, it'd be interesting to see how that works out. And then, I mean, the, the, also the thing about expansion is, I think, an opportunity to spread the game around the country. Um, you know, you have uh, down the south, you have Dallas. You have obviously Arizona if they make it. Uh, Florida, Tampa. Um, so trying to spread the, the game geographically around around the country. I think that's probably the mindset there. Uh, but I'm not sure exactly when and if it should happen or if and when it should happen. So um, the NHL had a ban on uh, players supporting uh, social causes uh, with their equipment and stuff like that. And then obviously the tape issue came up. Um, I was kind of happy to be honest, that uh, they did away with that uh, as a team, having to wear jerseys. And I, I understand certainly a lot of people, it started, I think, with military nights. And then yeah. uh, all of a sudden, another group wants to come in, another group. Um, what's your take on that? And I know you each, you know, player 
uh, is able to now, uh, because you got involved, uh, if they want to use pride tape, they can use pride tape. But what the overall issue of, of that, you, you think it's good the NHL kind of took that out? I, I think that, you know, again, this issue started right before I took the job. And then when I got the job, this was like the first issue that kind of came down. Uh, I was a little surprised that there was such backlash on jerseys. And I didn't realize that, the, you know, I don't think it was mandated, but a player didn't want to wear a jersey for whatever reason. He didn't wear a jersey. It became a story. And then it went from locker room to locker room to locker room. And I think that I think we're heading in the. I think the league, the league is work, clearly working on inclusion. There's a player inclusion committee that's put together, um, you know, trying to create more inclu- inclusivity for the game, both on the ice and off the ice. I think that's important for the growth of the hockey. Um, and I think that the, the ruling, reversing that the tape was a good move uh, and allowing people to wear, um, put any tape they want on their sticker. A stick in pre-games and warm-ups is a good way to move. You know, th- there's going to be a social cause that, that comes up that teams are going to want to support and, and cities are going to want to support. And if you have a ban on everything, then you can't support it. And I think back to like the Boston Marathon bombing here uh, after the bombing, you know, um, Boston Strong kind of came out of uh, th- that very unfortunate circumstance. The Red Sox, the Bruins, uh, Patriots, uh, Celtics, uh, they changed their colors for a couple of nights. The Red Sox still wear the yellow and blue, light blue shirt on, on uh, Marathon Monday. And I think that if, if the league didn't change, a lot of that probably wouldn't happen. But I, I think giving people the opportunity to express themselves during practice is fine. Uh, it's unfortunate it became such an issue. And, you know, there are players in the league that didn't want to wear the pride jerseys because of whether it's political beliefs or religious beliefs. And, you know, I, I was a state rep in 2004 when marriage equality became uh, the law of Massachusetts. And, I, um, a friend of mine, Liz Maya, represented from 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 Jamaica Plain, called me up and asked me to, to support the support the marriage equality, and I did. And, and I took a lot of grief for it in two thousand four. But for me, I felt it was the right way to go. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think that not everyone supported. Everyone had different reasons for not supporting it at the time. Uh, I think as time goes on, people will understand. But uh, I think the the league, what we did yesterday with with the tape, was the right move. I think the jerseys, the jerseys just bring a highlight to people. I don't think we necessarily need jerseys on the ice. I think if people want to throw tape on the stick, if they want to sign jerseys, they can. And now if people, you know, the events that we supported, I think, and I could be wrong, but, you know, I don't think we have an autism awareness night. So if yeah. people want to put tape on the stick for autism awareness, they can't. Uh, you know, if they want to put domestic violence on their stick, they can't. If they want to put suicide prevention on their stick, they can't. If they want to do, you know, st- uh, there's a football player in the NFL that, that supports a stuttering organization. He stutters and he supports an organization. So now, now players can can support any organization they want, you know, put on their stick, maybe raffle the stick off later for auction. I think that I think that's the right move to make as we move forward here. I mean, the world is so, uh, you know, social media and, and, and the press and everyone is so political. They're not, no one's going to focus on the 22 players or the 21 players that are actually wearing the jersey. Everyone's going to focus on the one player that's not. So I think doing this is the right step in the right direction. All right. Um, you know, holding all these different positions and different jobs over the years, um, I guess when things are new, we know it's exciting. There's a lot to learn. We get going. How does this job compare to all the other positions you held? One. Two, out of all the positions you held over the years, what was probably the most difficult thing you had to deal with? in one of those jobs 
like yeah, um, the, well, know, the toughest thing you had to deal with. Yeah, um, well, the, the, this job compares probably more to being mayor than any other role I had. And, and the reason I say that there's a lot of moving pieces. Um, you have to respond almost instantaneously. You don't have time to think about it and, and come up with a. You got to get on a plane now, right? Instead of jumping to, in the car and go going to a neighborhood. Um, so <laughs> and and uh, so so I think that it's more like being mayor. The press. Hockey press is very scrutiny, a lot of scrutiny there, and and they're on top of everything. So when you're the mayor of Boston, a lot of scrutiny there, and you know, so th there's a lot of similarities there um, to to all that. Um, the the other part of that, probably the two toughest days, <clears throat> two of a couple toughest days I've had as mayor, and mayor was probably the one was uh, one was um, um. We lost, early in my tenure as mayor, we lost two firefighters uh, in a fire on Beacon Street. Um, Eddie Walsh, Lieutenant Eddie Walsh, from Mike, firefighter Michael Kennedy. Uh, it was on Beacon Street in Boston, um, and it was awful to, to, to be standing in the street. One of the firefighters was still in the building as the fire was going on. One was taken out, died in his way to the hospital. And then having to um, go to the families afterwards. My, um, you know, Eddie Walsh had three young kids at home and his wife, oh. Kristen. And yeah. it, it was Roxbury, living West Roxbury, yeah. and it was uh, it was tough. It was tough. And, and as the mayor, you're trying to like, you know, you're trying to, um, you know, you can't say the right thing, but be there for compassion. You try and console the yeah, families, right? right? But um, yeah. another day as mayor, um, I was in Philadelphia actually at the Democrat National Convention, and we had a little boy uh, that uh, walked out of um, the L Street bathhouse and uh, went into the water and drowned. And yeah. um, uh, Kaiser Willis, uh, and and I got the call in Philly, uh, and I got on a plane and come home. Uh, it was it was awful, um, and then we lost you know um, another boy, little boy in Southie in a car accident. So it, it's just it's a, those are those are days, and any homicides and shooting, those are days that are just tough tough days, um, yeah. you know. And, and I'll tell you one other story just real quickly. So I was not the mayor during the marathon bombing, Tom Menino was, uh, yeah. but I was the mayor the one year anniversary of the bombing. Um, and, um, as you think about leading up to the one year anniversary, you know, uh, vice president, then Biden came into town, uh, president, president Obama came in during right after the bombing, vice president Biden came in the one year anniversary day. And, and that day in Boston was a pretty somber day because it was one year anniversary. We were remembering, uh, Lindsay Liu, Crystal Campbell, Sean Collier and Martin Richard who died in the oh. bombing. Uh, and then that weekend thinking it was going to be a somber weekend, was just an amazing weekend in Boston. It was leading up to the marathon. Survivors came back to the finish line. We took back the finish line. It was amazing. So in a weekend, it just shows you how it goes from being a somber, you know, remembrance of a, a tragedy a year ago, and then the strength of Boston, the resiliency of the city, and the resiliency of the survivors, you know, three days later and celebrating people. It was just amazing in Boston. So those are different piece, things I've experienced in my life um, as mayor. And there's other ones too, but those, the biggest ones are probably the, uh, you know, the, the our two firefighters that died and then uh, the uh, Kaiser Willis's death. And, yeah, for and sure. Colin McGrath's death as well. That little uh, Martin Richard. I, when you think those sick bastards, what they did, and they walked right up behind them and put that right thing behind down behind. It, it's, it's awful. Uh, I mean, you think yeah, about that sickening. Day, if you I don't know if you saw the Netflix documentary, I watched that and I knew a lot was going on at that point. And like I said, I was running from here. We were running from here then, but um, 
that was awful. Like when you think about how close they were to the Richard family and to Crystal Campbell and Lindsay Liu, and then later on they ambushed Sean Collier over in Watertown yeah. and kills him. Uh, it's just it's just a horrible, horrible situation. Yeah, tough to deal with. Well, that hopefully it doesn't happen again the way the world is today. It's crazy, but uh, you know, I guess, and I'm not asking for myself, but <laughs> did you think? And I remember when I played. Uh, we had our collective bargaining agreement come up and we were asked to give money uh, to the former players who kind of blazed the way for the Players Association. And we did. Uh, do you think that's <clears throat> something that will be brought up again in the next agreement? And do you think it's fair to give the former players something? Yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a person that believes that we stand on the shoulders of the people that came before us. Um, I always say that when I speak at a retirement party for a union, I talk about that, that we stand on the shoulders of people who came before us, so we can't forget them. Uh, I, I have One of the first people I met with uh, when I assumed this role, took this role, was Glenn Healy. Uh, and I've stayed very close to Glenn. Uh, I, we, Glenn, we had a meeting in Boston uh, a couple months ago with Bobby Orr and, and, and Ray uh, and, and Glenn, and we talked about players. We talked about, you know, Pat LaFontaine does a lot in this space with the yeah. league. Uh, Rob Zaminer from the PA does a lot in the space, the league. So I think that, you know, as we think about moving forward, we always want to be able to help players. We, I know there's different generations of players that older, older players, Johnny Busick era, they really didn't have anything. Um, the next generation had a little more. You guys had a, you guys had a little more pension. The pension today is, is a really good pension for the future, for the future retirees. So, I think we can't forget the past and we have to do everything we can to be in, be in, be in assistance. You know, I've talked to Glenn Haley many times and he's expressed, he's told me so many stories of players down in their luck. And what people need to understand too, and not enough, but I just want to say this to everyone listening, like our heroes that we watch growing up, like I did growing up, sometimes those people, those players, when they're done, uh, they don't have anything else to fall back on. And some of those players get into depression, they get stuck with alcoholism, drug addiction, and they have no place to turn. And I did, do think it's a place, important for us never to forget them and try and find places to help our former players as best we can. Um, I got a call from uh, Dick Redman, um, you know, early on in my, in my time here as the PA head. And so Dick called, I got Dick's number, I called him up and he, he was explaining to me who he was. And I said, I know who you are. I was a kid watching you play with Brad Park on the line and the Boston yeah. guy, and you wore number six, and he was all excited. Yeah. And, they, you know, those players, that's why I think when I think when I talked about Unlimit earlier, we launched Unlimit, it's making sure that we're preparing our players for success after the game of hockey so that the people that came before us that fell in hard times because they didn't have a pension, because they didn't make million-dollar contracts, because they didn't have anything, because they might have got screwed out of their money. Um, we, we, have, we have something set in place for them for the future players. So we learned from from what wasn't done in the past and put it and put it to the front, but we still can't forget the past players. Yeah. I remember at 92, like we went on a 10 day strike uh, before the play my last year. And, you know, I forfeited a, a good chunk of money that last, uh, that was my last season in the NHL in 92. Um, and then there's been subsequently three lockouts, uh, yeah. September 15th, 2026 is the new collective bargain agreement supposed to be in place. Um, what are some of the biggest issues for the players and for you representing them um, 
going into that agreement. And I'm sure you don't want to think of lockout, lockout, but it could get to that point. What, what, what are some of the biggest issues and how do you avert that happening again? Because it's happened. Well, I mean, we, we haven't really started talking to the players yet about what they're looking at, what we'd be talking about in the collective bargaining agreement. And we will start that at some point soon in the future. Uh, but I, I can tell you this, we'll be ready for a conversation with, uh, with the league on collective bargaining and we'll be, we'll be positioned to, uh, I'm hoping, and I don't I mean today, today, as we talk here today, I don't see a lockout coming. I think it would be insane for the owners to lock out the players because uh, you're trying to grow the game and that will just put the game back another few years. Uh, and I think for me, it's really about keeping conversations going, uh, keeping my conversations going with Gary and the league. Uh, we're working together to grow the game of hockey at the moment um, and working with, you know, letting the owners know how we feel. And I, I think there's, I think there's a, a tremendous upside in the game of hockey that they haven't taken advantage of yet, meaning the lead, the, the owners of the, of the league. Uh, and we want to be, we want to be part of that. And, you know, when it comes to collective bargaining agreement, I've done lots of agreements. I've been involved in nasty agreements. I've settled nasty strikes. Um, and, you know, we'll, 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 I can tell you this, the, the player association will be ready for the negotiation. Uh, and we'll be a willing participant as long as the players are treated fairly. Uh, we're all in. So looking at the agreement, when you come in and went over that whole agreement right now, looking at it before you even talk to any players, is there something there that you'd said, you know what? I think this I don't could know. be I mean, better. Again, I want to I talk to the players because everyone has a different perspective uh, on, yeah. on what we should be talking about. I mean, I think about – you know, like you think about the pension, the pension was, 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 uh, was brought in a few years ago and, uh, the cost of living is increased, included in the pension. So that's a good positive. We want to make sure we continue the pension system moving forward in, in a positive way. It's a multi-employer pension plan. So that's a good thing. Uh, you know, we want to make sure that we want to make sure that the players are, are treated fairly. I mean, a lot of, obviously a lot of it comes down to compensation and salaries, but it's also the little things per diems, um, you know, practices, time off, family time, all that stuff is all part of all part of what we're going to look at and talk to the players about. I mean, people don't realize, I mean, when I say this again, the, the public that's watching the podcast today, you know, the, the hockey contract is no different than the constru- a construction contract. You get days off, uh, you, get, you get all that opportunity. And you think about it as a hockey player, like when you're not playing, you're practicing. Uh, you're always engaged in the game. So, you, and you, you, you're a human being that has a family, have problems and challenges and sick kids and, 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 and families that you have to deal with and parents and things like that. So you want to make sure that players are treated fairly. And so I haven't really, you know, I've just said to the, when I've gone around talking to players, start thinking about what it is you might want to think about in negotiations when they come up, but we're still, still, still a bit early to be, to be getting into uh, fine tuning what it would be. Well, uh, looking back at the COVID situation, um, you, you know, the league had to hold money in escrow from the players yeah. and the players had to would basically p- p- pay the owners back. Was that it? Because they lost yeah, they money. The owners back. Can, can you ma- maybe explain that in a nutshell? Because a lot of people ask me, what's the escrow all about? And, and um, are the players all paid up now? They had to p- pay the owners back because of money they lost because of – you know, no so, fannies in the seats. So I'll try and do the best I can. Um, so <laughs> you, you, you take the you take the league, okay? You take the you take all the revenue goes into a pot. It's a 50-50 split. Fifty percent goes to the players. Fifty percent goes to the owners. In the players' part, it pays their contracts. Uh, it pays their benefits, um, and, and all of that gets paid out of that. 
Um, there's a salary cap, obviously, that we have in the NHL. Salary cap as a team can't pay more than that. Uh, and, and what you have to do within the 50% share you get, you have to pay all your bills off. The escrow is there in case that you don't get it. You, you don't have enough money coming in to pay your bills off. Escrow during COVID was like as high as 18%, which meant that if a player got $10 million a year, or got a million, usually a million, a million dollars a year, 18% of that was held to make sure all the bills were paid at the end of the year. Okay. Um, and, you know, because the COVID year, uh, it went, there was one season, there was no fans in the stand, so you had no revenue coming in there. Uh, so now what we look, we're looking at, we're looking at the salary cap next year to go up about $4 million. We're looking at uh, revenue going up a, a, a good amount in the NHL, I think about 5%. And depending on a couple of uh, what happens with companies, uh, the players are paying 6% escrow this year. And the goal is trying to get as much as that 6%, 6% back in players' players' pockets. The way you're successful with that is by growing the game of hockey. The more revenue that comes in for the game of hockey, uh, the better it is. So when you think about sports, football is about a $13 billion a year industry. Um, baseball is about 11, basketball is 10, hockey is about six. So there's so much room for growth there. I mean, you don't compare and compete with the team in front of you, mm. but there's, there's opportunity for growth there to grow the game of hockey, uh, whether it's international, whether it's uh, domestically here in the United States and Canada. Grassroots stuff. In Europe. Right. So there's opportunities for us to grow the game of hockey. And I think that we have to think about how do we do that. And that's one of the things that 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 I mentioned earlier is that I want to do that. So I don't just, we don't, as a union, we don't just run the collective buying agreement. We actually look at how we want to keep grow the game of hockey. And I've had conversations with, with Gary and uh, the leagues working with the PA and other ideas about it. But we really, I think we really have to think about moving forward. How do we grow the game of hockey? The the, the more revenue coming in, uh, the better it is for, for the league. Do you ever see the NHL expand into Europe? Could there be, could that be in the plans at some point? Because boy, so many yeah. players come from over there, right? And I know like trying to get teams to play and, you know, you go to Europe for a two, two week road trip or something. I don't know, but um what do you yeah. think of that and you think it's a yeah, I, 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 that's a how one as 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 a as a as a fan uh, or as, in the role i'm in now realistically i don't know if it can happen i i know that the nfl's thinking about it a little different situation you play once a week you have time to recover so if you have if let's say hypothetically there's a team in england and you're an nfl team you fly from new england to new england to england it's about this from from boston england it's about the same from from Boston to for, to LA. LA. So you'd have to like that's different sport. I think when you talk about hockey, even basketball or baseball, it makes it more complicated because you get teams in the Midwest, teams out west, they're going to be doing an East Coast trip, then they have to do a, a real East Coast trip and go over, overseas. I think it would be I think it would be really hard to do that um, to to players uh, because of of the time change and because of the travel. I just don't know that I don't yeah. know if you could pull that off, but I do think that. If we have a good plan, we can do a lot more games in Europe uh, internationally to grow the game of hockey over in Europe. Um, along with, I mean, most of those most of those countries have their own hockey federations and have their own PAs over there. But I think there's opportunities um, to to grow the game of hockey and create more opportunities for European players to play in NHL. There's a lot right now. I think about a third of the league is, is European players. Yeah, 
For sure. Um, I remember back in the 80s when, you know, we were talking about um, having Russian players come over and we we're like, you know, no. But the league expanded. We were only 24 teams at the time. Yeah. But you just could never, you know, put the quality on ice uh, with just North American players with the number of teams. And, you know, um, what was this? I just got slipped my Oh, yeah. 82 games a season. Now, when I watch the regular season sometimes, I don't want to watch <laughs> because yeah. the product sometimes is like, you know, it's just not there. Like some of those games, like playoff hockey, there's nothing like it. I've always said if they could just knock 10 games off the schedule that the in-season product would be so much better. Guys would have more time to recover. It's 10 games. The owners would never go for that. The owners would never go for it, but even the players, the contracts change then. Because yeah. your contract is based on 80, 81, 82 games. Um, and, um, you know, now you're playing 10 less games, and that's, that's less revenue coming into the league and less opportunity. So I think that that would make it difficult. I'm not sure what the magic number is. You're right, though. There's yeah. nothing like playoff hockey. Playoff hockey is amazing. Uh, I don't know if anyone watched TV last night. ESPN had on 16 hockey games last night. It was yeah. just amazing. Every, every team was playing. Uh, but, you know, there is excitement. I think that the one thing I think we have to make sure when we're doing TV, I'm, just, I'm getting away from what you, the question you asked, but I think we have to make sure on TV, we have good national TV contracts now, TNT and ESPN. Before when it was on the outdoor network, I mean, I remember being a fan wanting to watch hockey, and I mean, you couldn't find the outdoor network anywhere. Um, now it's it, it really is about creating opportunity and access. I, I'm not sure what the magic numbers for games are. It's hard to say. I mean, I think baseball goes through the same thing with the with 182 game, 162 games. Is that too long? Football yeah. wants to have more games. They're up to 17 now. Uh, basketball same as pretty much same as hockey. So it's hard to say what the magic number is. But if you cut back, if you cut back on games at this point. It changes the whole the whole dynamic of the, of the sport. Well, for me, the greatest player ever was uh, Bobby Orr. And you talk about the health of the players. And uh, I was just part of that, <clears throat> took part in that concussion study, Boston University over at, uh, in Boston. And uh, I'm going to be followed up on each and every year moving forward. Um that's been a big issue. Uh, I yeah. wasn't part of the concussion uh, lawsuit. I didn't want to be part of it. Uh, I did what I did. I accept full responsibility. No one ever made me fight or no one ever made me go play because, you know, if if I had a concussion or I was questionable, no one ever forced me to do anything that way. Um, the greatest player for me ever, Bobby Orr, believes that the red line should be put back in the game of hockey. Uh, he said he'd like to see players come up the ice together and pass their way through the other team and, and get to the opposing net. I don't believe, and they say the league, you know, that they worry about the health of the players. And certainly with no red line, the speed of the game today, the violent, collisions that can happen out there guys help certainly um and they i, I know guys accept it and they, they'll play but then you get guys who suffer severe injuries and do, do you think 
the league would ever look at doing that and would the players well, they, buy have into a, it? they have a player uh a, a rules committee the players are on and that's really what i mean that's one area that i would never give my opinion on because i think you have to leave it to the players and uh, you know yeah. it, there are certain things that, that i will give my opinion on but when it comes to the actual game and the rules and regulations I didn't play it at this level, and I don't think I, I certainly don't have the expertise to talk about it. And, and you know, as a fan, obviously, like you know, being a fan, you think about growing up in Boston, as you know, like you go to a game every night. There was goals and fights every night, yeah. uh, every night. I mean, I, I'm, my first memory of Bruins is '74, and so '75, '76, '77, the '80 games, the seasons you were in Montreal, the fights in the Garden with Cordic and Miller and all. That. I remember, yeah. I remember all that. It was, it was exciting back then. Uh, but then you think about now I'm in the role um, and you, you read stories and like, like you, Chris, and, 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 and Brent Myerson and other people that, that I've, I've talked to personally and, and, and read their books and, and looked at these studies. You think about, OK, that's fun for a fan, but that's a that's a person on the ice that's going to have long term impacts. And so I would leave all that. My personal thing is I leave that to the players and, and you know, Ron Hainsey, Joe Wiki is part of that. Uh, player committee uh you know we have chris campoli we have a lot of former players on staff that 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 you know i depend on what they what they what they say cool cool um certainly um just a couple more here before i let you go i know you got a lot of stuff going on um you're obviously very proud of your, your irish heritage growing up in boston but uh mom and dad are both from ireland mom from ross muck uh, it seems like a lot of people came from that area in Ireland. My great-grandparents are from Kilcogan, not far from Rossmark in in Galway. Um, uh, your parents coming over, they met over here. Uh, how was that growing up, you know, mom and dad being from Ireland and then growing up in that section of Boston, Dorchester, back in the yeah, day. Yeah, you know, when you're a kid, you don't think about it. Um, right. You know, we, I grew up in a three-decker house. You know, we lived on the first floor of a three-decker. Uh, those of you that don't know what three-decker is, it's a house <laughs> with three stories, you know, first, second, third floor, long hallway down the middle, one bathroom, and how many how many people in the house? One bathroom every floor. Um, you know, and, and you don't realize at the time, but as you get older, as I get older, I started to think about where my parents came from. Uh, my father came from Karna, which is a little further back in, than Rushmark. Uh, they can't. They had nothing. Like my mother, my mother. They, they grew up. My father's one of thirteen, stone floor. My mother was one of seven. Uh, they had a farm. They lived on a farm. To, then the farm was to raise food for the family to keep the family fed. I mean, that wasn't. They weren't making millions of dollars. They didn't have cattle to to sell. Yeah. It wasn't that type of farm. So you learn about that, and I think subconsciously, you, you hopefully you, you earn that work ethic that your parents had. My father became a construction union laborer in Boston, local two twenty three. My mother did domestic work, um, and it was pretty. I mean, growing up in my neighborhood, we didn't have a lot, but we didn't know that. Uh, it was awesome. It was a great neighborhood to grow up in. Um, you know, it was great. You know, we had the, as you know, being West Roxbury, we had rivalries. We couldn't go to Southie. We couldn't go to West Roxbury. We couldn't go to High Park. Right. We couldn't go to Charlestown. No one really, no one really crossed the border anywhere. Everyone kind of stayed in, on their on their corner. Um, but it was, it was as a person growing up there. It, it's also who I am. It gave me that that understanding. You know, in Boston, as you know, this we're really known by parishes. So, yeah. uh, and I'm I'm a Saint Margaret's guy. Are you holy name was Saint Teresa's. Saint Teresa's. Yeah, so Saint Teresa's. I'm whole, I'm Saint Margaret's. So it was kind of like even down there. So that's lost a little bit today, and I, I'm kind of sad for the kids that that's lost. 
we had a real active CYO back in the day. We had Father Coyne from West Roxbury, uh, yeah. who was our, our, our priest uh, who came to St. Margaret's when we were in eighth grade, just like, you know, first Bruins game, first Celtics game. He just, just the, the experience we had was amazing. So I'm proud. I'm grateful where I grew up and, and had two Irish parents, immigrant parents um, who came here to work hard and, and, you know, and raised us here. And I have family back in Ireland. Uh, I haven't gone back in a little bit, but I go back a, a good amount. I get a little frustrated when people criticize immigrants today yeah. because, you know, we all, we all came from somewhere and, you know, my father didn't experience this. Uh, your grandfather might have, like in the turn of the 19th century, 1920th century, they didn't want Irish here. They were yeah. regarded as pigs and dogs and everything else. Yeah. And that, that, you know, it's changed today, obviously, but now different different nationalities are regarded like that by people. But it's really, it's tough, but it, it was it was a great place to grow up. Yeah, no question about it. I, I, I miss home uh, being here. You're going to, obviously, the offices in Toronto, you commute, yeah. uh, Commute yeah, next week. Back and forth. Uh, right now we're we're we begin fall tour. So what, what fall tour is every every uh, beginning of the season, uh, the PA myself and, and Ronnie and a few other people go around and we talk to all the teams, all the players uh, on the fall tour. We let them know about the PA. Uh, this one for me is really is the first one. So we're introducing who I am, and then talking about what we've done up to this point um, for uh, for players and for the PA. Uh, so we do it every year. So for the next you know two and a half months. We'll be on the road in a big way. Uh, I'm fortunate enough today to be in Boston. We have uh, four teams coming through here, so I get a chance to hit four teams this week. Oh, that's nice. So how many, how many, there's 32 teams. How many have you got done? We've done seven to this point. How's that for you going in, uh, you know, the first time and going into the NHL locker room and saying, here I am, I'm going to re re represent you guys. How's the, the you know, feeling around the, the league. Well, yeah, at first, you know, like, like you said, we didn't get into this really, but you, one thing I find about hockey players, they're the most humble people in the world, most down to earth people and most honest people. So, so when you walk in, I don't want to like appear like I'm lecturing to them. Uh, yeah. And every single one is, I think at least the feedback has been, they've been great. So we're in there having good conversation with the players and, and uh, it's been good. I now, you know, after seven of them, myself and Ron Hainsey have our little thing going. So we have it down pat, you know, it's the same conversation, all the players, talking about what's important, you know, escrow, hockey-related revenue, uh, talking about international hockey, talking about situations that we've experienced, talking about wearable tech, all the top issues of the pension, healthcare, all the, all the top issues that, that, that are important to their life that they might not think of on a daily basis that we're doing. That's for sure. I remember back as a young kid, I, as a player, I was like, you know, play a rep, would get up and speak and, you know, you'd listen and, you know, you'd catch some of it, some of it you wouldn't. You didn't realize in the early days how important it was to to take note of all that stuff. So, uh, you know, yeah, I try to get their cool. attention. I try to focus. Even the younger guys, I stand around them and talk. I'm like, guys, you, you, don't, you might not pay attention to what I'm saying, what I'm doing. Just listen because this is going to be important at some point. Uh, and, yeah. you know, and I, I think it's important to have a very active union, not just during negotiation, but throughout the other seasons, because if it's only during negotiations, well, and you don't do the job of explaining who you are, what you're all about and what we're fighting for, then you, you're not going to have a, 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 a fair shot at negotiations. If the players realize it and they support you, you have a better negotiation conversation going on. Yeah. The, um, it, it's funny. Um, when I retired from hockey, I went to Emerson College. I took public speaking, and I got an A in that. The best I ever did in college, and I took another course. Uh, 
mediation, negotiation, and conflict management. Yeah. And I got an A in that. Um, yeah. And I forget the, uh, it's been so long, I forget, they gave us a, like a, a, a word like P-A-S-S for good negotiations. I forget what the, what each one meant for, uh, meant, but um, it was, uh, it was interesting. And I'm certainly looking forward to see what happens here in 2026. All right, I'm going to let you go. But one thing, what's, you got to write the first line of your eulogy. What is it? Oh, God. Um, Monty Walsh grew up in St. Margaret's Parish, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> and died uh, a sober man. And uh, died a sober man. I, you know, honestly, Chris, I think the biggest thing for me is, is you know, everyone talks about legacy, what legacy is like. Um, yeah. And my legacy, I don't need a building named after me. I don't need a statue named after me. I, I just want to have made an impact in people's lives, whether that's anything I've done in life, whether it's in recovery, whether it's a state rep, whether it's talking to a player. Again, it's not about accomplishing the best contract that the players have ever gotten. It's about helping that one player that needed help that was able to help. Uh, and put them on a pathway. I think that that's that's what I want in life, and I don't know how you put that in words, but that's that's who I am. What I'm all about. Um, I'm not looking for. I don't need accolades. Well, you certainly helped a lot of people. I know for one, my my nephew, who lost his dad to a, uh, a police officer back uh, in 2000, and you helped him, and I appreciate that. Uh, like you don't know, so I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there like that, and I want to wish you. Uh, nothing but luck and, and good fortune moving forward here, uh, especially coming September 2026. Yeah. So we don't, <clears throat> we we'll, don't we'll see another one. Next time I'm, I'm sure. on the podcast, I might be dropping little chitlets well, in to see what they have to uh, say. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. If you get up this way, it'd be good to um, get together. We can grab a bite to eat. And have you visited here yet, Montreal? Not yet. Yeah. Last time I was in Montreal, uh, it was, uh, I think it was last time I was at a hockey game in Montreal. I was up there a couple of years ago as mayor, but it was in 1992. Cam Nelly scored a goal on over Patrick Wash's shoulder. So that's the last time I was in the forum. Yeah, I must have been there. I must yeah, I have been there in 92. <laughs> Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Raw Knuckles podcast. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe.